Welcome to the podcast of America This Week, courtesy of the Catholic Channel on Sirius XM 129. If you want to listen to more, subscribe to Sirius XM and tune in on Wednesdays at 1 p.m. Eastern on the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129. Hello, this is Tim Reedy sitting in for Father Matt Malone. And I'm Kevin Clark. I guess I'm sitting in for Kerry Weber then. Yes, you are. This, this week. Uh, we're, we're talking to Eileen Markey about her uh, recent uh, article for America Magazine, uh, which you can find at americamagazine.org. Canadian Catholics grapple with the history of whitewashing indigenous children. Uh, really, uh, really a shocking story uh, out of the uh, 19th and 20th century. What a century, huh? Boy, I'd like to re- redo the 20th sometime. It just did not work out well for the church or the world. Well, um, now might be a good time to bring in our guest who's been sitting with us, Eileen Markey. Great to have you t- today. Thanks for having me. Great to be with you. So Eileen has an article, which I mentioned earlier, uh, which is in uh, a recent issue called Canadian Catholics Grapple with the History of Whitewashing Indigenous Children. And we were just talking about, the uh, Eileen, about, you know, what's been happening at our border with separating families. Unfortunately, this is not a new practice and something you report about happened um, in the last century in Canada. Maybe you can introduce this story to our listeners. Sure. Um, This is a story about uh, residential schools for Native Americans who in Canada are referred to as First Nations people. Um, The Canadian government had a policy. Um, It was understood by some as an education policy, but it was understood by the Canadian government and is now acknowledged as such as an eradication policy, a plan to eradicate the First Nations people in, in Canada, you know, a policy that developed over or was was instituted for several hundred years. I wrote about um, a very recent part of that erasure uh, elimination policy, um, which was this residential boarding school system for, for First Nations kids. It operated from the 1930s until the 1970s in Canada. Um, a, a identical system operated in the United States from the 1870s until about the 60s as well. I just happened to write about the version in Canada. Uh, and the reason I wrote about it in Canada is because, unlike the United States, the Canadian society has had a Truth and Reconciliation Commission around the treatment of its First Nations peoples through this residential system. Um, there's a bunch of different angles yeah. to it, but the story I wrote was actually really a story about um, about memory and reconciliation and facing culpability and facing participation with evil. And the church's role in it, correct? Right. So uh, these residential schools were administered by religious organizations. So I was writing about the Sisters of Charity of Halifax, um, a, a religious order, right, of Catholic nuns who ran two of these schools. There were hundreds all across Canada. Most of them run by Catholic orders. Some of them run by Anglicans. Some of them run by Methodists. You know, all the different Christian religions in Canada. Um, How did that was was there? Uh, you know, is the church uh, always a go-to person when governments are looking for? you know, education or social services? I mean, how did the church get drawn into this kind of work? Canada has a really different relationship between church and state than the United States does. Mm -hmm. Um, So the... It's more like Ireland. uh, It's more like Ireland or France or a lot of, right, a lot of European countries. Um, So so there was this policy anyway of taking Native kids away from the places where they lived, which are called reserves there, what we would call in the U.S. reservations, right? taking children away from their families and sending them to boarding school, to residential boarding school. And I think um, the way that a lot of white people in Canada or us as, as uh, 
non-Native people in the U.S. might think about it as like, right, well, because the reserves were terrible places, right? They were terrible, and you wanted to get kids out of that environment and educate them and bring them to the boarding school where things could be better. Um, that's the memory that the Sisters of Charity had. and that The a lot institutional of, memory of their participation. Their institutional right. memory of their participation, the institutional memory of white people in Canada was, right, well, we don't do things like that anymore, but that was because your reserves were bad. And... Um, First Nations people in Canada said, yeah, that's not how it was. We started telling you in 1879 that this was awful. What was the treatment like of kids at these schools? So people would be taken, children, you know, just like the pictures we've seen from the border in the past few days, right? Children taken out of their parents' arms um, and pushed onto buses, pushed onto trains, um, and sent to other parts of the country. Um, and they were not allowed to speak their native language, Um they were beaten if they if they did. Uh, they were not a, allowed to use their native names. Sometimes the kids were um, were called only by numbers. Um, they were physically punished, and I don't mean in like an old school paddle way. I mean in a cutting with scalpels on your skin sort of way. If you spoke your your native language, um, siblings were separated and not allowed to speak to each other. So if you're the little brother who's four, and your twelve year old sister's in the girls' dormitory, and you sneak out in the night to try to see your big sister. You're beaten. Uh, some of the instruments of torture included cattails, which are, you know, uh, leather, um, multi-stringed things. So this isn't, again, I think sometimes we have this tendency to minimize harm that happened in the past, right? It, it's almost like a, well, there's a it's the, almost like an instinct, the, right? The, the impulse as well, it was different times and different methods. And, and you, right. might, you have to find yourself wondering, what, at what time was this ever uh, an okay method? I, I I don't know the during the Inquisition, perhaps. I mean, where where did these where did this methodology emerge from? Right, and so the article I wrote was was about this one community of women religious, was one community of nuns facing the fact that their community was involved in this sickness, and really looking at it square in the face. And I think it's such a human instinct to, even as I'm telling this story, I'm imagining that most of the listeners are saying, oh, but my father had his knuckles wrapped in school, yeah, too. Yeah, right. Right? Yeah. And, uh... Other uh, good sisters sometimes had to take extreme measures, but yeah, this... Right, but this was a different thing, and it was a stated policy of the Canadian government to erase the children's culture in order to assimilate them into a Canadian-European system. Um, and again, you hear yourself in your head saying, yeah, well, because if they're going to make successful people, they needed to, right? And so the whole process of working on the story and listening to the First Nations people who were survivors of these schools uh, or whose families went to these schools and, and survived or didn't um, and talking to the sisters and then speaking to theologians was in trying to figure out how you face culpability, how you face involvement in that without the like, oh, but it was different. Right, right. Because we have this such an instinct to minimize and um, and to want to rush to the reconciliation, right? So as I started to say, Canada actually had a public truth and reconciliation commission around all of this, similar to South Africa or Rwanda, right? Um, and that involved there being a bunch of lawsuits and then a, f a, a settlement, a financial settlement. Um, and then after the financial settlement, the real work began, which was hey, you know, non-Indigenous Canadians, you have to hear this. Mm -hmm. We're going to hold a bunch of public hearings all across the country. Was it was a five- or six-year process, I think? Yeah, exactly. And the, the settlement involved, I think, maybe 99 
requirement from everything from, you know, changing how it's taught in the in the state curriculum to language accommodations, changed road signs, things like that. Um, but one of the major ones was simply a public hearing um, in each major city. And so I spoke to these sisters who, who participated in those by going and listening, and you just have to listen. You just have to listen, and you can't say, like, oh, but we didn't know. Oh, but we were trying, you know. Right. It was just a matter of acknowledging it, which I think is a, um, which is really difficult for white people to do, right? Anytime we're heard anything, anytime we hear the, you know, it, we always have this, oh, but, well, but why was he out at night? Why did you send your kids to the wedding? Oh, but what? Right. We And this was a, if you're going to ever get to reconciliation, first there has to be a truth-telling and an, a, a, an establishing of facts. And then there has to be a sincere um, sorry, right? Mm-hmm. Like, just like when you and I go to confession, it doesn't work unless you're sorry, right? Do the, me- do the members of this religious community, in the article, your article, you were, they were mostly a generation removed talking about the institutional culpability and the in- institutional remorse. Are there any, I mean, some of the people who suffered at, in these uh, residential schools are in middle age now, uh, or my age, I guess. Well, I'm middle age. So let's just cop to that. Um, do we have any living members of the community who can, you know, verify and offer a personal uh, demonstration of remorse and atonement for, for what happened? Or is that is that generation the survivors of that generation just completely in denial about what transpired? Um, so I think there are three sisters who were members of this particular community who still worked in the schools when the schools were still running. The schools... So they ran through the 70s, right? Yeah, Early 70s. And, and the Sisters of Charity, the school they ran, closed in 67. Things got a lot better um, in the late 1950s. Uh, they were still, you know keeping these children from their families, but in terms of the physical abuse, things got better. Um, but no, I was not able to speak to those women. They're very elderly and were not made available to me, but um, there have been some tiny bits of, mm-hmm. of facing that. I think the sisters I spoke to who were more uh, of the of the next generation, right, women in their 70s as opposed to in their 90s, yeah. um, or in their 60s maybe, talked and- about the that it was really hard for the older sisters right. to, to face this, to acknowledge it. And so what they're doing, this kind of current generation of sisters, is they're doing that work of acknowledging it themselves, right? Uh, and it wasn't just hard because maybe some of them were actually in the schools, but also the whole identity of the order was tied into what they a certain narrative that they believed what they had done good for this community, and suddenly yeah. that was totally turned on its head. Exactly, that like changing memory, right? If we're going to change the future, if we're going to build... Um, a just society or the kingdom of God in the future, we have to have accurate understanding of the current, right? The current time and of the past. And we all carry these memories of what we think the past was, these inherited memories of the past. Um, and for many of us, these are, these are not true. These yeah. things we think about are not true. And so we can't build something real if we've got this, this glossed over idea of the past. But it's really painful when it gets personal. And for these religious orders, it's like their family. It's like this, it, 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 as if their family was involved in this, because they have such deep ties to these communities. Think of probably what the Jesuits go through, thinking about people in their past who owned slaves. Um, where there, there was a controversy at Georgetown last year, trying to come to grips with this. So this is an issue that's not going away. 
Yeah, this is that's exactly it. So I think I'm very interested in writing about that, about the challenges of memory and the challenges of eliciting your memory. And as Catholics, I think we speak about reconciliation more, especially with Pope Francis, right, about mercy and uh, wanting to free ourselves of guilt and the, the sort of way our culture talks about it. Um, this was going back to a very old school way of thinking, actually, right? Like, um, the sin's not going to go away until you're sorry for it. But yeah, you mentioned, you write in your piece that uh, reconciliation is a very Christian word, and you can see kind of the confessional as a way of comparing this. But is there a way when it, that's also unhelpful? Because it is, in in our tradition, it, it is quick. <laughs> you can go into confession, and if you say you're sorry then it, it's done, but it doesn't, it Some seems like this is... Some of us are in there longer than others, <laughs> But um, But, so is there a way that that kind of thinking could get in the way of the process by trying to make it move too fast? What some of the theologians I spoke to said, and, and some of the, the other people in the piece as well, um, yes, that like, if we have this sort of cheap transactional understanding of what happens in, in that sacrament, mm-hmm. then maybe that would be unhelpful. Um, but if we're really thinking about uh, clearing blockages, clearing clearing clutter, right, clearing things that separate you from God, um, then it then it makes more sense. And especially that that part of it, the um, the you know the sadism, the, right? But like you know, the the, the, the true regret for the sin, right? Yeah. Um, and when I think when we talk about social sin and when we think about social relationships we're more, we probably have more of a tendency to just want to, right, well, that was terrible. Let's move on, right? Um, whereas when we're thinking about our personal, whatever we've done wrong that's led us into the confessional, we're probably, if we're grown-ups with a fully formed conscience, is willing to like linger on it a little bit. Um, well, you have to make a good confession, right? When that means you have to say everything and say it out loud and acknowledge it. And uh, so, uh, you know, the this these church, uh, the these religious uh, community members you spoke with, they're taking the time to say out loud what happened and what happened to these children and who now who now are suffering in many cases severely broken adults who've had broken lives because of this childhood experience. Uh, so those things have to be given time to be to be spoken out and aired and yeah. suffered with. I guess it's I mean it's it's, it's hair raising reading. I'm sure if you if you delved into the truth and reconciliation documents, uh, the stories there are just incredible. Yeah, it's hair raising, and then it's hair raising to think, um, right? Who? How did this I emerge love nuns, out of our, right? Like I wrote a book about a heroic nun. I find yeah. them amazing women. I really am quite happy when I'm in a in a circle with these great the you know these great well educated thoughtful humble activist nuns, and. Um, so this doesn't come from I don't I don't harbor those stereotypical ideas about nuns with rulers. I actually think of them as these like uh, really fantastic, brave, spiritual guides. Um, and so to to do this story for me actually was was partly facing this other history. Um, and it was it you know you talked about in the Paul McCartney and uh, that little video that sense of humility. Um, so here the sisters, the current day sisters, are having to hold this deep humility of, of facing it. Saying, yeah, yeah, my order did this. My order that I thought was brave, roll up your sleeves, girls, and went out to the frontier and tried to help people. I'm going to have to acknowledge that that's not what we were doing. What, what have some of the sisters told you about what that's like? 
that it was in, incredibly difficult, that it continues to be difficult, that it kind of moves in this circular way. Um, let me see, I spend enough time with Nanda speaking in a really woo-woo <laughs> way. But that there's these, it, you know, the past isn't over, right? The past, it keeps moving around in a, in a circle or in some sort of an oblong, and we keep repeating it. Um, and so in acknowledging what they were part of or what their older older sisters in the community were part of, it's not like you do that once, right? They have to keep doing it. You have to keep facing it. Um, not in a sadistic way, but in a, until you can say that truly. It's been purged. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that the the restoration needs to happen also through real acts, right? So that the um, you don't get to clo- closure for the crime or uh, restoration by just saying, oh, my God, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. Right. But that you have to make real restitution. That's kind of what the theologians and people who are experts on peace and justice reconciliation efforts talked about, that you need to hear what happened, you need to acknowledge it, you need to recompense at some real expense, and then you need to build something new. And so the Sisters of Charity are involved in these recompense at real cost, right? Hiring indigenous people on their faculty at their school. Uh, they have a uh, center for First Nation students at the school. They've had these public art projects um, support for friendship centers among the First Nations in their province. Things that actually are measurable and that count, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Because on the other hand, right, that the sweeping under the rug is, is not right, but on the other hand, endlessly torturing oneself but not doing anything about it is also that that yeah. also doesn't get right. you anywhere. Yeah. Um, uh, Eileen, you mentioned uh, folks who want to find out more about this or who might um, be remembering their own suffering uh, or experience uh, in Canada or in the United States, uh, because as you say, we, we had a similar program here in the United States. Where, where can we point them to find out more? So the Canadian government sponsors... Um, something called Truth and Reconciliation Canada. Those are all proper nouns, you know. And it's, <laughs> all a, capitalized. Giant, it's a giant website, right? Right. This, There's yeah. this giant website called Truth and Reconciliation Canada where you can read all of the, the like, 99 points of um, agreement on what will happen afterwards. Um, like I was saying, changes in curriculum, acknowledgement, language rights, things like that. Um, but also many of these testimonies have been collected and are archived there. There's photographs. Um um, and, and timelines of this long process. This is a process that, that the Truth and Reconciliation Commission process has been happening in Canada for 15 years. Um, and it began in the 1990s, really, when um, uh, when a, a man named Fant- Phil Fontaine in Western Canada, uh, who uh, had a position of authority among the Manitoba chiefs, he's a First Nations person who was involved in his, you know, his local administration, um, made allegations of sexual and uh, physical abuse in one of these schools. And that um, sort of opened the floodgates for many, many other allegations of abuse from First Nations people against the church entities that ran these schools. And what was beginning to happen is that there were just, like we saw in the sex abuse crisis cover-up here in the U.S., all these different lawsuits that were threatening to bankrupt uh, Catholic and Protestant churches in, in Canada. Um, and then the churches turned to the government and were like, hey, but you know what? This was your policy, Canadian government. We were administering your schools for you. And so then there were countersuits. And uh, and basically, Canada tried to do this big omnibus, let's settle all of these at once, put together a giant restitution fund, 
get all the legal stuff finished, which took a very long time, um, but set up a, a you know, a, a monetary settlement fund administered by the nation. Um, and then after that is the, okay, now that that's all finished and people got tens of thousands of dollars and, you know, there's like a whole calculus of what you were owed. Um, and then after that comes this truth-telling part. What I say in the article is that, you know, there's the financial settlement and then there's the much harder work that has nothing to do with money but everything to do with memory um, and everything to do with acknowledging what happened. And really, it will take forever to get with people to understand what we've done, right? What our ancestors have done, what we've benefited from, what we keep doing. And I know some people hear somebody speak that way and just kind of immediately turn off. Um, but that doesn't make it not true. Uh, and it's really difficult to look at the past. Um, but if we ever want the past to end, that needs to happen. And that that's what the theologians and the spiritual people say. It's like, if you ever want the past to be over, you have to heal it. And then you can build something new beyond it. Um, so I found it very difficult to write this story and very difficult to report it. Um, someday I'll write about something happy. Um, but I found their great bravery and grace in the willingness of the sisters to look this awfulness square in the face and try to contemplate it. Um, because when you think about it, even more personal, right, individual bad things that happened in your family's history, uh, they, they need to be confronted in order to end, right? Or, or the, the distortion just kind of continues and you, you continue on in a distorted way. Mm. Um, and you, you talk about how the past, it, the, the pain isn't confined to the past either. The, you don't have to be, or even people who weren't in the system are suffering the effects of it. Maybe their parents went through it and then had a broken life, like Kevin mentioned, with abuse or alcoholism. So what, what are some of the effects that are present? A ton of, um, you know, family abandonment, right? Uh, young adults came out of these schools. Uh, they were very bad at being schools. Yeah, first of all, they were very good at destroying out, they, kids. They didn't do a good job right, teaching they, these kids right. either. Yeah. They stripped people of their culture and their connection and their connection to family and, and, and you know, nation group, right? Ethnic group. Um, but they didn't do a good job in teaching them English or math so the or social studies. purported goal of assimilation was also deeply compromised because how do you assimilate in a culture, a, mo a culture that's modern like Canada, without skills, without, without a language skills uh, of any sort? Right, exactly. Um, so then, you know, lots of unemployment, but lots of, you know, mental health issues, alcoholism, addictions. Um, and then, as is often the case, right, family abandonment. So I spoke to a woman who grew up without her dad, without her First Nations dad, uh, because he was just hounded by these, by these monsters, right? And by this addiction um, and by mental health crises. And so then you've got the second generation, right? And that's the person who grows up without a dad. And there's thousands of people like that. Um, or grow up with parents in the house who are physically abusive because this is how they learned to institute authority, right? Um, so tons of family abuse like that. Uh, the and so, you know, and then there's other sort of maybe a little softer, but the loss of language as yeah. a person. I was going to say crimes against the culture as well. It wasn't just crimes against the individual or the family. I mean, how do you restore, uh, if you've crushed a generational passage, you know, these, these folks weren't able to pass on the culture to their children. How, are they trying to 
address that problem? Yeah, and that's I mean, a big part of these agreements that come out of the settlement, these these agreements within the culture. But, um, you know, as somebody who's Irish and a writer, I think a lot about the loss of our language, mm-hmm. right? Uh, the I was going to say there's a lot to, well, I don't want to, every tragedy like this is unique in its own way, but the Irish uh, under the penal laws had a similar experience and particularly the language uh, devastation. Yeah, I mean, like a very similar experience, right, with a very similar goal um, of freeing up desirable land by erasing and Im- immiserating of people who were already there. Um, it's like a good dry run. Um, so as a writer, anyway, I think about what would what are the thoughts I would have if I had the language of my great-grandparents that was forcibly taken from us, right? What are the things I can't think about and the, the metaphors I can't understand because that language has been stripped? Uh, and so this was something that was happening to First Nations people in Canada in the 1960s. Right. Now, do you have a sense that other countries are looking to Canada? I, obviously, this Truth and Reconciliation Commission has been tried in other countries and other settings, but... but Think of a place like Ireland that's going through its own reckoning right now. Um, other countries look to Canada as a pre- potentially a model for how to do this. It was really interesting to do the, for me anyway, to do the research on uh, on how these truth and reconciliation commissions work, and they're all a little bit different, and yet they all work on on some similar models. And so there's discussion around that in the article. Um, people who are experts on how it's worked in South Africa, how it's worked in Rwanda, how it's worked, and what it is that we're trying to do when you have a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Um, and that might be an area of like some small hope, where there are there are smart people who think about this all the time and who go from case to case trying to build up how do we heal. Because the point isn't to, uh, to just list the sins forever, right? Like the point isn't to say, well, that was bad and that was also bad and this was another horrible thing. Uh, the point is to try to build that healthy society and try to build that kingdom of God. Um, and there's techniques and strategies for how we can do that that are actually not at all woo-woo, that are actually very like practical. Um, and so it was good to know that there's people who think about that and are working on that. Are there people working on that in the United States specifically? This is a Canadian problem, Ashley. <laughs> I think we've demonstrated that it was a Canadian problem. And uh, The thing I thought about the whole time in writing it was uh, that I hoped people would read it as a, as a metaphor for the U.S. Imagine if we recounted this around Native Americans in the U.S. or around African Americans in the U.S. And, you know, this, this process in, in Canada was about this residential school system. It wasn't about uh, colonization. Right. So similarly in the U.S., what if we just started in the post-World War II era, right? And what if we didn't even start with slavery or emancipation or Jim Crow? What if we just started with the GI Bill, the thing that made my family middle class, the thing that made me able to do everything that I've been able to do, the benefits that accrued to my dad because he wasn't black, right? What if we just started there? Um, that would be an amazing thing, and it would be so hard for us. And it would, we would spend so much time saying, but my dad worked hard, right? And that would be accurate. And also we would need to hear. It would be accurate but not complete. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so hopefully people will read it and be able to think not just, wow, I'm so glad the Canadians are doing this, right? Um, but that that we all have things to face and that they would be better if we could be brave enough to hear them. But that that's really hard. Um, and I think it's really hard because... In this case, for the religious people, it's the the thing that made this happen was the religion, right? They're not ancillary. The Canadian government 
was part of a, a Christian movement to take over that country, that piece of land. Uh, and they needed to clear it of the people who were there, and they needed to say that this religion is right and this one is bad, and we need to erase that one. And for faith-filled people and people who are proud to be Catholic, that's awful to contemplate, but it's also true. Right. And it shows you, I mean, early in American history, there were many Catholics who felt that the church and state should be closer, should be united, but over time came to realize why it was important for them to be separate, and you start to see it in stories like this. When the church and the state in Ireland and in Canada were working together, some of these abuses could occur. Yeah, we needed plausible deniability. (laughs) Well, again, we want to thank Eileen Markey for joining us, for coming in today. And again, you can read her article at americamagazine.org. And of course, you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And we invite you uh, to subscribe to America. And you can do that by calling 1-800-627-9533. That's 1-800-627-9533. For Father Matt Malone and for Kevin Clark and Ashley McKinless, thank you and have a good week. Thank you for listening to the podcast of America This Week, courtesy of the Catholic Channel on Sirius XM 129. If you want to listen to more, subscribe to Sirius XM and tune in on Wednesdays at 1 p.m. Eastern on the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129.